Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Digital communication technology is changing our lives, and now it holds the possibility of reorienting the way we exchange value and think about money. Does exponential innovation in digital currency have the ability to change the global economic order along with other parts of our lives? In the first part of today's episode, we hear from Paul Vigna about his new book, The Age of Cryptocurrency, how Bitcoin and blockchain are challenging the global economic order. Paul discusses whether the technology behind Bitcoin can change the way that money and value are exchanged in society and how it can unseat the financial institutions at the top of the monetary pyramid that have a stranglehold on the value exchange in today's world. So Justin, in the interview, you and Paul talk a lot about Bitcoins and blockchains and cryptocurrencies. These are kind of terms I'm not super familiar with. I've heard them before, but don't really know what they are. Maybe you could go into a little bit about what these actually mean. Yeah, outside of the currency nerd community, not a lot of people are familiar with Bitcoins or blockchains. And Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, the first really major cryptocurrency that was created. And what that means is that each of the transactions on the network are verified using computers that are owned by people all around the world. There's no central command that is verifying the transactions like when you use a credit card or you go to your bank ATM. And using complex cryptography that's available by today's computing power, it secures the network from people using malicious attacks or trying to lie about how much money they have in their wallets. And the blockchain is the technology that really enables this. So maybe you've used BitTorrent and you've downloaded a file and that file is not on a single server, it's on everyone's server. And BitTorrent goes out there and says, hey, you've got that piece and Seth has this other piece and Jim has another piece and it figures out how it can get all those pieces fastest because that file is distributed among a lot of different computers. Well, the blockchain is exactly like that. It's a ledger of every monetary transaction that has ever happened in the Bitcoin network. So when I send you money, Seth, using Bitcoin, it says this digital address sent your digital address money and recorded that. So that way it's never double counted in the ledger. So it would be like, if all of the stocks that were traded in the world, you knew exactly where they got traded to. You may not know who owned the bank account that they got traded to, but you know where they went. 
So it's a completely open system of seeing where the money goes and who gets the money and how the money moves. Exactly. And anyone can look in on this blockchain ledger, this record of all the transactions and see where it went. And so that means that the kind of shady financial black hole that a lot of people are worried about is much harder to duplicate in the world of Bitcoin because you know where the money is going over time. Now, you don't know who owns each of the wallets that it's moving to, but you can trace it back through time to see where the money has moved. That would be a really interesting thing if we had that in our monetary system. Yeah, and that's what we're going to be talking with Paul Vigna about today. Excellent. So after we finish talking with Paul, the second half of our episode, we're going to continue with our theme on technology and speak with Jim Jubilier, a seasoned executive, coach, and public speaker and deep thinker on artificial intelligence and jobs of the future. Stay tuned for another exciting extra-environmentalist episode. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. Get ready for episode number 92. the two of us wrote together, we both kind of had the same initial reaction to Bitcoin at slightly different times. I was a little bit ahead of him on the, the up curve, but both of us, the first time we came across it, were actually very negative about it. And I remember, I mean, I remember specifically the first time somebody suggesting that I write something about Bitcoin for WSJ.com, I flat out refused to do it. I literally said, we are not writing about that in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know what it is. It doesn't make sense. I'm, I said, no. I just said, no, we're not doing it. And that was my initial reaction, which I think is a lot of people's initial reaction. But then I just, it was the kind of thing that it kept popping up on my radar. I, I just kept hearing little bits and pieces about it. And mm -hmm. invariably, being a journalist, being a reporter, being a, a curiosity bug, it kind of stuck with me and I, I kind of would hear a little bit more about it. And then I started reading a little bit about it. And the more I read about it, the more I heard about it, the more interested I got in it. This was probably in the spring of 2013 when it was really just starting to break out of the sort of nerd tech libertarian crypto anarchist circles into the wider mainstream. So this was 2013 I was hearing a little bit more about it, and then I finally kind of said, you know what, maybe we should write one or two things on this, just, just so we're on the record, you know, just so we're on the record <laughs> as, as being there. And so I wrote a couple of things. You know, I would talk to somebody, one or two people at a time, on the phone, and just get a little take on it. And then in the summer of 2013, there was I went to the, the Inside Bitcoin conference here in New York City. And that was the first time I had ever been in a room of Bitcoin people. I'd ever, it was the first time I'd ever been around more than one or two people. And the thing that just screamed out at me was the sort of just the collective enthusiasm of that group. 
for this technology. Just so many people, most of them young, but not all of them young, very varied, you know, just wildly enthusiastic about it. And it just dawned on me at that point that there was something here. I didn't know if it was legitimate, not legitimate. All I knew is that there was a story there to be told. Mm -hmm. And that's when I kind of started getting very interested in this because, you know, Justin, I mean, I'm not uh, an entrepreneur. I'm not a techie. I'm not an engineer like you are. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. I'm a journalist. So for me, what really hooked me onto Bitcoin was when I realized that there was a story there to be told and a very interesting story. And actually, it was at that conference. I came back and I was telling another reporter here about it, just about you know the characters, the energy, all these different aspects of it, you know. And he looked at me and he said, "You know, that's that sounds like something Michael Lewis would write a book about." <laughs> and as as soon as he said that to me, it was the light bulb thing, and I said, "Oh my God." One, you're right. Two, why am I going to wait for Michael Lewis to come into my backyard and write this story that I have that nobody else is really jumping? You know? So right then and there was when we first got the idea for the book. So you were talking about how you were at this conference meeting Bitcoin people yeah. and the enthusiasm of the Bitcoin people was starting to, to really draw you in. And when I talk to people about Bitcoin, if they are the evangelist kind of mindset, Bitcoin is going to change the world. There's no other way about it. Now, how do they say that Bitcoin's going to change the world? And what's your perspective on it after diving into all the research? Right. It's, it's funny because I think back then it was a very simple proposition that Bitcoin was going to change the world. It was that it was basically a better way to do money and that money had been corrupted by you know the banking cartel, by the central banks, by governments. It had been debased throughout history, you know, all these things that aren't necessarily untrue. And I think their very simple thought was Bitcoin is a better, cleaner, faster, more transparent way to do money that cuts out all those middlemen who end up taking bits and pieces of the currency and twisting it for their own purposes. We have this thing that is an improvement over all of that, and it is going to take over the world in six months or a year or whatever it was. They had a very you know short time frame. They were wildly enthusiastic about it. I think in the intervening time, you know, since then, what has become clear is that that initial very simple vision was not really accurate. But I think that the technology, and we're just starting to see this, the technology is proving to be extremely valuable. And you now have central banks, major corporations, governments, everybody looking at this technology beyond just using it as a currency, using it as Bitcoin and trying to figure out what they can do with it because they do see a value there. They do see a process that can be an improvement over the way things are getting done now and have been getting done for decades and centuries. And that, I think, is extremely significant. I think in the Bitcoin evangelist community, there might be a bit of an idea that is kind of antithetical to politics and the idea that the technology of Bitcoin, of the blockchain, can replace a lot of the political problems right. with money in our society. Like you were mentioning central banks and, mm -hmm. and their decisions and, and the whole history of the Federal Reserve, et cetera. So what's your take on how Bitcoin could change that game? Because it seems to me that 
the politics are going to be there in some way, no matter what. And even though the blockchain is a really exciting technology, right. can it really disrupt those kinds of networks of politics that control the current money system? Right, right. Well, I think the answer in the short term is a flat out no, it can't. I mean, you're not going to get rid of the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, RBS. You know, you're not going to get rid of this entire global infrastructure overnight because you have a technology that works. And I do think Bitcoin works. I mean, don't get me wrong. I definitely think it works. You're not going to erase all of that overnight. It's just not going to happen. Could it happen over decades so that in 10, 20, 30 years, we have a system that looks so different that we will say, wow, it really happened? That's possible. That's possible. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it's possible. But you're not going to get rid of all those things overnight. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to happen. What's interesting and ironic is that if you look at Bitcoin, not blockchain, not the technology, but Bitcoin and the Bitcoin industry and the community, it is tearing itself apart over an issue of politics. There's this question of how to scale it. It's growing to a certain point. It has certain built-in limitations on how many transactions can be processed at any one time. And the question over how to change those limitations has become an intensely political issue in the Bitcoin community, and they are tearing themselves apart over it right now. So it's almost ironic that this, this system that is supposed to be trustless, that is supposed to be without any kind of outside influence, you just flip a switch, turn it on, and it's going to run itself, is proving that human frailties, which is what politics really is all about, you can't get rid of them. You can't get rid of them. And so you have this situation where Bitcoin is at a crossroads and you have these two groups that have very different ideas about what it's supposed to be and where it's supposed to go, and they cannot get beyond this. You mentioned that maybe over several decades, the blockchain does have the ability to really change the way we exchange value and use money in our societies. Mm -hmm. So could you talk about that vision? Like sure. at the end of your book, you have kind of a yes and no case on right. whether Bitcoin's going to change the world. So could you lay out those yes and no cases for our listeners? Sure. And my personal view is yes, I do think that over the next couple of decades, you're going to see this technology become a really central part of our daily lives. The reason I think that is because I think it does improve on processes and services that we have now that we have done for a certain way, and it does them better. It does them faster. It does them cleaner. It does them more transparently. What it really does, I think, is it takes, let's just say, the transfer of value, to use a sort of clunky term, and it computerizes it in a way that that hasn't been done before. What you have right now, when anytime you transfer a value, anything of value, it could be a mortgage deed, it could be a security, it could be currency. Anytime you exchange those things, on the surface, you are doing that electronically where you do a stock trade, right? And you go to E-Trade and you put in your numbers and it gets done electronically and the, the trade is, it shows up on your account, you know? You traded X shares of Apple, here's what you had, here's what, you know. Yeah. That seems to happen instantly it doesn't happen instantly. There is still a very, very time-consuming, laborious process in the background, in the back office that goes on with that. It is the same with anything. You swipe your credit card. It seems to happen in five seconds. You sign the receipt and you walk away. The reality is that that process takes days before 
the money goes from your account in your bank to the merchant's account in the merchant's bank, and there are several intermediaries involved to verify your transaction, to verify who you are, a lot of processes that are very time-consuming and laborious and still mostly manual can be automated through this blockchain technology. That, I think, is a very, very important improvement. In the past, we could only do through a real kind of process of centralization. I mean, everybody likes to beat on the middlemen, but we needed the middlemen. There were things that could only be done because you had somebody who was willing to stand on both sides of a trade and say, I will guarantee this piece of it. I will guarantee this tranche of it. My specialty will be looking into the background of people and making sure that they're not terrorists. My specialty will be making a market and a trade and ensuring that it goes through. I provide the liquidity. We needed middlemen to do certain things. This technology, I think, and again, Justin, this is just what I think. And like I said before, I'm a journalist. I'm not a techie. So I'm not actually the best source on this. I mean, my role is really just to kind of describe this to people in, in a general lay view. But what I think is the sort of central value of this, to use that word again, is that it takes a process that we could really only do before through a funneling, a centralization of things. And it sort of decentralizes that process. It puts it out on a computer network where things are verified automatically the second the transaction goes through. That has not existed before. And that, I think, is a very, very significant improvement. Basically, what you're doing is, you know what a seal is, right? I mean, people have used yeah. seals for thousands of years, right? The king's seal, he has a piece of wax, he's got his own little marker, he puts his marker in the wax, and that is the king's seal. And everybody knows that that is the king's seal. And therefore, that document that's in there is coming from the king. This kind of automates that process, and it does it in a way that you don't need anybody else to verify that transaction. That, I think, is extremely important. And that's a really powerful technology because banks have been able to pull in reams of money by simply just sitting as that middleman, rent-seeking, capturing that unearned income, yes. simply existing to handle these transactions. Right. So in your view, we'll get back to the kind of no case for Bitcoin in a moment. We just talked about the yes case. Sure. But in your view, what if we took that money that is kind of being skimmed off the top every time a transaction goes through right. by all of these transaction processors? What if we put that back in the hands of people? What is your vision for what that would do? Well, there are two things. One, yes, a lot of money will be saved. How much exactly? I don't, you know, nobody really knows, but they've done estimates of how much just the costs to the banks of running that old system that we're talking about. They think they could come up with a savings of about $20 billion a year globally. Wow. It's significant. I mean, that, that's a lot of money. And that is just physical cost of operating the system. That isn't what you're really talking when you talk about rent seeking banks. That isn't really what you're talking about. You know, how much more money the banks are taking out of the system just to line their profits, that number is really kind of unknowable. But just let's talk about just the costs of running the old system as opposed to a blockchain based system. Roughly $20 billion. That number has now permeated through Wall Street. That is why Wall Street is now very interested in taking this whole thing very seriously, because they see a way to save money, real money, actual significant amounts of money on a year-in, year-out basis. That's why they're taking this seriously. The question is, who's going to end up with that savings, right? I don't know that the people are going to see that. 
I don't know that the people are going to see that. That's a problem. It would be nice if this system was run in such a way that all that capital that gets tied up would go back to the people and it could be put into more productive uses. I just have to be honest. I don't know that that's going to happen, though. That is a big philosophical question that is going to get hashed out because you now have a situation – no pun intended with the word hash. <laughs> <laughs> you now have a situation where people are trying to figure out the best way to implement this technology. And the question is, are you going to have basically a closed-loop system that the banks control or will you have an open-loop system like Bitcoin that is not controlled by anybody? That question, I can't answer it, nobody can answer it, but that is going to be the big question. What is this going to look like in the future and who is going to control it? Because who controls it is going to have a big, big influence over where that money goes when they realize those savings. Yeah, and thinking about Bitcoin and the blockchain specifically as a technology, it holds a lot of promise for emerging markets, people in the developing world. Yes. In your book, you write about the unbanked in places like Kenya right. who are starting to use systems like M-Pesa to trade or transact money, and it's making a big impact. Now, how would Bitcoin impact them? Is it really a technology that has its main application in the developed world or in the developing world? Right. Well, you know, it's a very good question. And the reason why is because when you look at the developing world and you say to people in the developing world, hey, here's this thing that is much better than what you have. They look at you and they say, huh, what? Really? Because I know that I can go use my credit card and it takes about five seconds and I sign a slip of paper if I even want to sign the slip of paper and I get whatever I want and there are never any problems with it and I have a banking account and I have access to capital. Why do I need this thing called Bitcoin? And they kind of look at you like you're crazy and they walk away. In the developing world, in the emerging markets, it is a far different proposition. And one of the things that got really interesting about Bitcoin is that this was probably late 2013, 2014, when people started to realize that there was a different proposition in the emerging markets in the developing world, they got extremely excited because there actually is a different proposition in the emerging markets. In the emerging markets, in a lot of these, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that I still say third world kind of reflexively, in a lot of these older markets, People don't have access to banking services. They don't have access to capital. They don't have all the things that we take for granted. One thing they do have, though, are mobile phones. Almost everybody in the emerging markets has a mobile phone, except for really the, the very most destitute, poorest people. But mobile phones are a very common feature. The idea is that you can put a Bitcoin wallet or any kind of mobile wallet onto a mobile phone and it doesn't have to be a smartphone. It can be a flip phone, a feature phone, a $25 phone that anybody can really afford. And suddenly you have opened up access to financial services that people have not had before. So where people had to go before and go through these remittance services that cost them 10, 15, 20% off the top, now you can give them a way that they can send money around for virtually no cost and certainly much, much lower costs than the existing system, people went nuts over this idea. And this has been a major, major focus. Now, it is also proving to be, as with most things, a little bit harder than people thought to implement. So that's an issue. But in terms of the promise, the promise is really there. And it goes beyond financial services. And, and we can kind of go into that a little deeper. But 
the main point is that in the emerging markets, this is a far different proposition, and it actually has the potential to give people something they do not have that here in the developed markets we have, which is access to financial services. Yeah, and you're writing about these Bitcoin 2.0 technologies where there are entrepreneurs who envision that the blockchain could replace the legal system or serve as kind of a platform for all of these different aspects of trust in our society to be replaced with the way that the ledger of the blockchain allows. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, I can. And I think there are a lot of different things that people are looking at. But I think one of the most interesting is there's a a Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto, who's very well known and has been developing this theory for decades about what he calls dead capital. And he calls it the mystery of capital. And the question is, why do developed markets emerge the way they do? And why do developing markets seem to always lag behind? And he very simply says, part of it is just because of the way assets are recorded. And the example is that you go to some of these countries and people have assets. People have homes. People may have a little stand somewhere, a little shop somewhere. But the record keeping is very poor and it's very hard for them to prove that they have this capital. And what ends up happening is you have no access to collateral like what we do here in the United States and then in Canada. You have a home. You can go to the bank and prove that you have the home and prove that you own it and you can use it as collateral to take out money. And people do this and they start businesses and they get other capital. And that's how the entire process works. That doesn't exist in the emerging markets and that has held back the emerging markets for a long time. And it's really interesting. My my colleague, Mike, who I wrote the book with, knows DeSoto and is friendly with him and actually kind of introduced him to this whole process of blockchain and he is now really interested in the idea that this open ledger, which is what Bitcoin is, which is what blockchain is, it is a automated, decentralized, not controlled open ledger, that this open ledger is the way to unlock all that capital, that you can now have a record-keeping system that didn't exist before, and because of that, you can improve the record-keeping functions, and people will be able to get access to capital that they did not have before. This is a this is a really, really big-picture idea that very, very serious people are looking into. And that's a really important distinction between Bitcoin, the currency, and the Bitcoin technology, which is this ledger, the blockchain that right. is shared among all the computers on the network and provides this common record of transactions. And that gets back to a confusion that is constantly perpetuated in the media around confusing this technology of that ledger with the currency. So working at the Wall Street Journal, working in the media, what's something you would change about the way the traditional financial media covers Bitcoin? Well, I would have to say here at the Wall Street Journal, we do it perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're you're in charge, so you get to do it the way. (laughs) If I were speaking as, as a Bitcoiner, the common complaint is going to be that we sensationalize everything, which is it is not a terrible gripe, and I understand it. I mean, look, I mean, that, that's the media in general, right? I mean, you get very interested when something salacious happens because salacious things, unfortunately, are pretty understandable. A crime is pretty understandable. A scam is pretty understandable. It's harder to explain a technology to people. So... You know, I guess if there were one thing that I could change about other media companies, not here at the Journal, because we do everything perfectly, it would be that, you know, they should spend a little more time trying to understand the technology and what it really represents and what the real potential is behind it. 
rather than taking the easy stories of the Silk Roads and the Mount Goxes of the world. I, I guess that'd be one thing. Yeah, the the crime potential of Bitcoin right. or terrorism or whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah, that'd be one thing I'd, I'd argue. Yeah, so as Bitcoin were to roll out, it requires a lot of computing power. Mm-hmm. And so one question I have is whether the future of Bitcoin lies in places with cheap renewable electricity like Iceland or Quebec with lots of hydropower, or cold weather. Right. Will the places without cheap energy from, say, the Earth get left behind in a Bitcoin world because Bitcoin mining takes a lot of energy? What is kind of the environmental consequence of, of a Bitcoin world? Early on, people looked at, at the numbers and the computing effort it was taking to run it, and they said, oh my God, this thing's going to consume the earth. I mean, it just it can't work. But the reality is that like anything in a, in a free market, people will find a way, and they are finding a way. You're right. They're going to places where the energy costs are cheaper, where we're in, you know, access to renewable sources is better. They are coming up with smaller and smaller chips that consume less and less power. They're coming up with, you know, creative ways to cool the chips so that you require less power to run the whole system. So they're finding ways around the costs. And I don't think the costs are going to end up being so prohibitive that the entire system collapses. One problem, though, and you can see it distinctly when you start talking about Chinese miners, is nobody wants to give up control. No one wants to give up control of their own financial power to I don't know who. And when you talk about China, one of the things about China is what's happening is the miners there, you know, look, they're they're very clever. What they're doing is they're really kind of glomming onto state-run energy sources that the state isn't really paying attention to what they're doing. So they're really getting energy for free. And that's one reason why it's become such a big deal in China, because they have access to essentially free energy. It's not really free. They're just not being forced to pay the costs of it. When you start talking to banks about a system like that, they want nothing to do with that. They want nothing to do with a system where their transactions are going through a Chinese-controlled entity. So in terms of you know getting left behind, which is what you argued before, I don't think the fear is that countries that have access to those energy sources will rule the system. I think it's the fear is that countries that have opaque access to you don't know what will get control of it. And nobody wants that. Do you know what I mean? It's not that the United States is thinking, oh my God, if we don't make our energy system more efficient, we'll get left behind in the Bitcoin world. No, 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 they don't really care about that. They're not worried about that. They're really just worried about who is actually controlling this system. That's what they're concerned about. Because a bank is never going to let their transactions, every transaction on their books, be verified by they don't know who. Yeah, and I think that question gets into the broader kind of paradigm aspects of Bitcoin between values of centralization and decentralization. And that's really the challenge is in the past, you know, you had a central bank. It was the central bank and it played a role where you knew who they were and who was at the central bank and so on and all these people. But Bitcoin, it's just these machines out there doing it. Could you talk a little bit about that interplay between centralization and decentralization? Yeah, no. And I think, you know, I I said this at a conference last year and I patted myself on the back for being clever about it. It's, It's exactly the same thing you're saying. I think that that friction between centralized and decentralized systems, no pun intended, is going to be the central friction of the next 10 or 20 years. And 
it is driven by technology because technology, to get back to what I was saying before, technology is giving us access to do things that previously we could only do through centralized systems. And that is going to be a big, big change. And it's going to take a long time for people to get used to it. I'm not a futurist, but I kind of consider myself used to it already. And when I look at the, the system we have now, it's, it's really archaic to me. And I think in 10, 20, 30 years, again, we, all of this has to be done on sort of, you have to look at this in, in a long time frame. In 10, 20, 30 years, people are going to be using money in a way that is so different to the way we use it now. They're really not going to recognize the way we use it now. I'm old enough, too, that I was raised with paper money. I don't trust credit cards. I don't trust pay. You know, like I like my paper money. I like having coins and dollar bills in my wallet and I use it and I see it and I feel it. But in 20, 30 years, people will be using money on their mobile phones. They'll be paying for everything on their mobile phones. They will never see physical money and their relationship to physical money is going to change. Yeah. So what would that world look like if Bitcoin is the driving force in 30 years in a digital money world? Yeah, I think it's going to kind of look like a Star Trek world. And I know now we're starting to like, you know, go off the rails into science fiction and I'm a geek and a nerd and I love Star Trek. But I mean, it's going to kind of look like that world where in Star Trek they say, well, we don't have money anymore. No one buys it. You know, well, of course you buy it. You have to have some way to move value between yourselves. And what's going to happen is I think money is going to become a service that underlies everything we do, but because it is going to be automated, digitized, the network will be decentralized, you're not going to actually see it. So you're going to go on Amazon and you're going to buy something and you're never going to see the money. You're going to go into CVS and, and buy something and the transaction's going to happen between the CVS terminal and your phone and you're never going to see money. This is happening on, a, on some basis now, but in another decade, two decades, three decades, when you have generations born who never even saw paper money, that's going to change our relationship. You're going to be buying and selling things. You're not going to realize it. And eventually what we think of as money, they're not going to think of as money. They're not even going to see money. They're just going to think that, well, I, I work for this credit on my account here and I go buy things with the credit. And there's going to be a very different relationship to money. I think it's going to become something that underlies what we do, but in a way that we're not even going to see it. And that is going to have a very subtle change in our psychology. And that, that can't happen overnight. That, that's a generational shift. Yeah. And in thinking about the future, we hear a lot about networks of trust in regards to central banks and talking about a new monetary order in the world, potentially, maybe a new Bretton Woods II kind of agreement. Right. So if something like that happens, could it involve a cryptocurrency? Could it involve Bitcoin if there's another financial crisis? Yeah, oh, I, I, it will. I will, this, I will say this. I will say this for sure. I guarantee that in 10 years, you will have a major global digital currency. It may not be Bitcoin, but I absolutely think you will have a major global digital currency. I don't know who exactly is going to issue it, who exactly is going to back it, but I do think it is going to come and it's going to come from a well-trusted source and it will be used because of that. I, I absolutely think that's going to happen. I absolutely think digital currencies are in our future. 
Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting to consider that a lot of banks will use gold as kind of a reserve. Could they ever use Bitcoin as a reserve? Do you see that potentially happening? Maybe not Bitcoin itself, but could they use something? Yes. Yeah, they could. And again, I think all of this to me, I used to think that this was a very revolutionary thing. Bitcoin is revolutionary. Now I think it's just evolutionary. I really do think that this is the way technology is taking us and this is the direction we're going in. And Bitcoin appears to have come from out of nowhere in 2008, 2009, but it really didn't. People have been thinking about this for a long time and people have been moving in this direction for a long time. This one, Bitcoin was just the first one to kind of put all the different elements together in the right way to sort of get it to click and work. And I think in the future, you are going to see more people get this to click and work. And it is going to be a very sort of slow evolutionary change. But you are going to see more and more digitized value exchanging processes. And again, that's an probably the clunkiest thing I've ever said, but well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. So before we close out, I said back at the start of the interview, we wanted to lay out the no case as well. Yeah. What do you think is the no case for Bitcoin? How do we not have that world that you were talking about? Right, right. The no case, I think the most obvious no case is that the central banks in the financial sector all reject this technology and all say, we're not going to use it. And because of that and because of the power they wield, nobody uses it. And Bitcoin remains sort of a novelty act. Bitcoin can't go away unless every single person stops using it. As long as you have a small group of people using it, it can stay and it will stay. So it can't be erased. It can't be just written out. However, if you do have these monopoly powers that say, we're not going to use digital currencies. We like the system we have. We're going to keep it. It won't grow. So that, I guess, is the most obvious no case. It would just remain as kind of a niche. Yeah, it would remain as a niche. It would remain as sort of an outlier thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so to close out, could you just talk about how Bitcoin's creating a new economy? Well, yeah, I think what it's going to do, and it's it's Bitcoin, the blockchain technology, the idea of an open ledger, the idea of these digitized, decentralized processes, all of that taken together I think what it does is, in a very, very real way, it shrinks physical distances and it erases almost arbitrarily drawn borders. And it takes a process that has already begun in terms of trade, global international trade, and it takes the sort of funding mechanisms behind all that, which has not been digitized, and it digitizes it. When you think about trade, a lot of it is finance heavy. You have to put up money to move product and then you sell it, point A to point B. Currencies right now are all national and they only move to the border. So you end up with these international banks that have correspondent banks on both sides and they this very, very convoluted process of getting the financing from point A to point B across the ocean. All of that is going to be automated and digitized in a way it hasn't existed before and made more efficient, more transparent, less costly. And the hope is that that frees up a lot of money, frees up a lot of time, frees up a lot of effort, and it produces something valuable out of that. I can't guarantee that'll happen. I think it'll happen, but it produces something valuable out of that. And, you know, it's just, it's in the same way that 
a generation ago, it was really un, almost unthinkable for you to talk to people in other countries on a regular basis. Maybe you had a pen pal somewhere and you would write a letter to a kid in France and in three months you'd get one back. If you go on Twitter, Facebook, you're talking to people around the globe on a daily basis. That didn't exist before. That same process that has happened on a sort of social level, I think is going to happen on a financial level. Very fascinating to consider. Thanks for talking to us today, Paul. Anything to leave our listeners with before we go? Uh, no, hopefully it was a lot for them to chew on. Yeah, that was great. You have an opportunity to pitch your website or book. Oh, well, yeah, the book is just, it's the age of cryptocurrency. Paul Vigna, Mike Casey, we are writing a follow-up to it. I'll pitch that. We're working on it now, so look for that early next year. Bitcoins are transferred directly from person to person via the net without going through a bank or clearinghouse. The Bitcoin revolution. This is going to change the world. A brand new currency with no government control. No president, no king in this world can stop a Bitcoin transaction. One of the first questions I'll ask people is uh, throughout history, what is it that's determined what is currency? Whether it's seashells, cows, gold, people, unfortunately, or, or US dollars or whatever. Now, one of the primary determinants of what is currency is what is legal tender for taxation, right? So whoever the king of the hill is, which is essentially government at the time, uh, what we'd know today, uh, will determine what they get paid in tribute or taxation or whatever you want to call it. Uh, they effectively, uh, large part, determined what is legal tender. And so that's sort of the first precondition. Now, US dollars will not um, go out of existence relative to, say, switching over to a, a gold standard or a gold currency system until currently the, the governments lose their ability to tax. Um, when the governments start to lose their ability to tax, then that's when we'll start to see the shift away to an alternate currency regime whatever that is, you know, gold or some electronic thing or some combination, who knows. Well, governments make new money by printing more. Bitcoins are mined, not unlike gold. Except here, a supercomputer or even a computer whiz mines new Bitcoins by cracking a complex code unique to each Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, miners use special software to solve math problems and are issued a certain number of Bitcoins in exchange. When a code is cracked, the person who owns the computer now has a new Bitcoin. And like a lump of gold, they can sell it or use it to buy things. And again, like gold, the number of Bitcoin is finite, capped at 21 million. This new technology, what will the banks look like in 20 years' time? Hi, I'm Mike. How's it going? And hi, you're Carolyn. How's it going? People can be their own bank. I think we're at a defining moment in the financial system. A lot of people have said the revolution has occurred. I'm not so sure that it's occurred yet, but it has the potential to be there. Today, banks are really at the heart of the financial system. Without banks, it'd be very difficult to make payments, it'd be very difficult to create credit, it'd be very difficult to create money. But recently, we've seen a lot of technological disruptors enter financial services. 
So examples would include um, not only digital currencies like Bitcoin, but also peer-to-peer -peer lenders, crowdsource, funding, and a whole variety of other innovations that people are coming up with as ways to not use deposits to fund lending. So Bitcoin is this unusual creature because we're not exactly sure who created it or exactly when it was created. It's really a series of protocols about how one person or entity can make a transaction with another. Banks are classic intermediaries. They're there between two people who are making payments. What Bitcoin allows is for that intermediary to no longer have to be there. If the central bank in your country is behaving badly, then you want to try to find some alternative. So in Argentina, when the central bank is creating a lot of inflation and make it very difficult to make payments and putting on all sorts of controls, Bitcoin is a terrific alternative. It does put a discipline on central banks. If they behave badly, there's this easy alternative for people to turn to. You're listening to episode number 92 of The Extra Environmentalist. Next up, we're talking with Jim Jubilier about the potential for exponential technology. I work with a chain of mental health physician practices. And right now you are dealing with issues. You come into the doctor's office, you wait a while, and then you see the doctor. But if you think about other areas of your life, you do things like send a text to someone or do a phone call. So why can't you have a phone therapy session with your doctor? And that's all coming. It's called telemedicine. And you're going to see explosion of it over the next five years. The second interesting development is machine speech. Right now, when Siri is talking to you, you know when it's a computer. But five to eight years from now, the computer voice will be indistinguishable from the human voice. So I'll talk to my phone and it'll sound just like another person talking to me. Exactly. And the best example of that was a movie called Her, where Scarlett Johansson is the voice of OS1, the new operating system that has a lot of intelligence. Happens to be a wonderful and very well done movie. Yeah, I like that movie a lot. Exactly. At the end of that movie, the OS goes off into cyberspace and tries to find herself, right? Well, she found another AI to hook up with, as it were. Yeah. So Alan Watts. That was the Hollywood part of the movie, though. So when you have machine speech that's indistinguishable from humans, and when as a human you're used to calling your therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist on the phone, the third piece of that puzzle is something called machine learning, or I like the term cognitive computing. You're seeing a lot of ads now on TV for Watson, which is IBM's cognitive computing cloud platform. And basically, Watson will read every single article that's ever been written in the field of mental health and will synthesize it and make associations and patterns. It's doing things that no human could ever, ever do. 
Now, there's still a very human part of it. It's humans writing the programs that access all that information. Right now in medicine, there are a series of decision support tools. So basically, you feed the AI, or I sometimes call it the robot, although it may not be a physical robot with arms and legs. You feed the program the patient information, and the program comes back and makes recommendations to you. Have you taken their blood pressure? Have you done this? Have you done that? Here's an example of a drug that has worked, etc. So it's designed to assist the doctor. But researchers are very actively working on algorithms to treat simple disease states. And here, in specific, specific, I'm talking about psychiatry. So there's a heuristic or an algorithm that you can lead someone through in a conversation. And based on what they say, you can respond with other suggestions or interventions. So robotic psychiatry is five to eight years away. Now, one of the things that people really resist, they're like, that's horrible, that's terrible, and how could that be, and all of that. But you have to really wrap your head around the fact that half of the world's population, almost half of the world's population, has no access to medicine as we know it. So the first place where some of this AI or human-replaced technology is going to get deployed is in places where the alternative is nothing. It's death and disease and famine and poverty. So if we, if we can bring mental health to half the world that's currently unserved in a massively scalable technological platform, why wouldn't we do that? Tell me about how would you deploy something like that? What would be the on-the-ground method of deploying psychiatry to the masses or medicine to the masses? So I just put a deposit down on a new Tesla, the Tesla 3 that they announced. Probably won't see it for three years, but my name's just on a list. And it's going to come fully equipped with the sensors needed for autonomous driving. Now, it's not going to be autonomous, but they claim that they'll know what technology needs to be in it to support the life of the car for when that does become enabled. So literally, you can put a deposit on a robot car today. Wow. So it's coming in many areas, really in all areas, and it's being driven by a sweeping revolution, not only in the processing power of computers, but the accuracy that are in cameras and sensors, and drones are an example of that, micro-robots, a variety of different technologies are all converging, and it's sometimes called the fax effect, which is if you just had a fax machine by yourself, it's pretty much worthless. If you and I have a fax machine, well, that's useful for you and I, but nobody else. But when every single office and home had, or you know, there was a period of time where faxes were big, then faxes became massively valuable. So each of these technologies, as they get better, help all the other technologies get better. And so there's a whole field of science that's studying the technology adoption curves and can predict with a fairly high degree of accuracy, not completely, but a fairly high degree of accuracy, where certain technologies will be and by when. 
And that idea of robotic-assisted psychiatry five to eight years out, that's my unofficial guess. But as I look at the trends, it's roughly in that time frame. It's not two decades away. It's something we're going to see very, very soon. So to your question of how are you going to deploy that, there are massive efforts underway to connect 3 billion, that's with a B, 3 billion people to the internet. And I've been talking about that for a while, except it's not accurate anymore. There are going to be a series of low-orbit, very inexpensive satellites that are going to make global Wi-Fi broadband ubiquitous for every human being on the planet. So how is it going to be deployed? There's a lot of work underway to get the more underserved parts of the world to have more technology coverage. It's interesting that you bring up technology and internet usage as a almost as a human right. It's something that every person has the right to. As, as, as here you are as a person, you have the right to liberty, you have like the right to freedom, and you have the right to internet. Is this something that we're going to see happening across the world? Or is it you know just the evolution of these big tech companies trying to find underserved markets? It's both. The role of the big players, and are they capitalistic or altruistic, is a complicated question doesn't lend itself to a black and white. And if you hate the big companies, it's easy to hate them even more as they get bigger. At the same time, if you wait for governments to come up with this, it won't happen. And if you're relying on NGOs and philanthropy, the scale isn't there. So it turns out that large businesses are unique, and I'm not saying large businesses are all good either, But there's a movement that exists that's open source and very egalitarian. And there's a movement that's also closed source, you know, come use our tool, come use our platform. And that battle is going to just keep getting played out more and more as technology becomes more ubiquitous. So it's really interesting that that technology companies are kind of spearheading this in a lot of ways. Do we see government coming behind these companies as far as backing these kind of large-scale infrastructure projects? Yeah, it's very important to take an honest and realistic look at the role of government in promoting well-being in our society and around the world. This is a presidential election year, and it's very popular to say government's all bad and throw the bums out and like shut her down. But what does that mean? We'd have no roads and no bridges and no teachers? No, doesn't mean that at all. So there's a movement called Gov 2.0, and it's designed to bring the latest technological advances into the operation of the government. And there are many success stories. There's still a lot of work to be done. You can think of Flint, Michigan as an example, but there's many others. There's a lot of work to be done, but governments are also trying to modernize. The other thing that's worth mentioning is the defense. It's a bit ironic that it's the defense industry that's funding a lot of this high tech So there's an outfit called the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. They actually built the internet. You know, they put the money up. Researchers created it. The head of DARPA then went to Google and was the leader in a bunch of advanced projects that we're talking about today, 
like Loon, which is their high-orbit Wi-Fi, and the autonomous car. Well, that woman, and we should note it is a woman, just joined Facebook and is running a new group to bring advanced technologies to further unite humanity. You may not love Facebook, but you have to admire what Mark Zuckerberg's vision is and the scale with which he's pursuing it. So you're going to be hearing a lot more about this new project that Facebook is working on. What is the project that they're working on? It's brand new. It literally was announced this week, and the details are to be determined. But one short-term thing that you can see in your Facebook feed today is there's better integration of video. And it's not all good. We watch something like 8 billion minutes of video a day now as a species. And Facebook is a bit of a black hole into which a lot of wasted time goes. But victims of natural disasters are more easily able to get reunited with their family. There are many, many, many examples of how the general ubiquitous social nature of social media is helping to connect people more. So like many things, it's nuanced. It's not all black and it's not all white. Yeah, absolutely. I think all new technologies get that little bit of adoption phase where you're not really sure about how you're going to use it, how it's going to fit into your life. And then, you know, there's the next generation who comes along who's born into it and they're native in it and they feel very, very much at home with it. I'm thinking about what a world with 3 billion people connected to the internet looks like. I'm thinking about how do we wage you know, economic wars? How do we fight real wars, physical wars with countries that you are very much connected with on Facebook or on Google? You're integrated very closely with the technology. So basically, everyone becomes part of the same community. That changes many things, changes governments, the uh, organizational structures of nation states pretty much collapses in that way. I'm sure you have thought a lot about this. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts about 3 billion people connected looks like. Yeah, that's an excellent question. There's something called yin and yang. And so the yang, the male principle, the driving force will be the technology that unites everybody. So we can talk about you know, Facebook, 1.5 billion, 1.5 billion people now are on it. And 1 billion people are on it in a single 24-hour period. Massive. It's never existed before in the history of humanity, even remotely. At the same time, we can see in our modern, in our U.S. presidential elections, that there's more nationalistic, tribalistic, nativistic, protectionism-type thinking that a few years ago might not have been as popular. Now it's really popular. The displaced workers in the Rust Belt are angry at globalization and the free trade deals. Now, I'm not going to defend the free trade deals, and I'm sure there's a lot in there that could have been made more equal. But even without those trade deals, globalization was still going to happen. And as people, not everyone, but as more and more people get disrupted, you are going to have more and more anger. And some people are very effective at channeling that anger, sometimes for legitimate constructive purposes, sometimes for destructive power grabbing purposes. But my message is a little different. Politics dominates our news cycle, but what people lose sight of is during our lifetime, 
more people have escaped poverty than in the history of humanity up until our generation. So that's the transformation that isn't ever going to slow down. Now, from an environmental point of view, that's very worrisome. If all the new middle-class consumers in China and India consume at even one-tenth the rate that an American consumer consumes at, we're going to vastly overshoot Earth's carrying capacities. So the environmental impacts of some of the rising wealth around the world is a concern. And one thing that we study when we study the digital transformation that's happening is something called dematerialization. So we're sitting at a conference table, and if I plopped all of the tools and technologies and systems that are in your iPhone on this table in the shape they existed in 10 years ago and 20 years ago, it would be a mountain cover half this table. It's all been shrunk down into transistors and software. And we see that dematerialization occurring in industry after industry. And by itself, it's not enough to turn the table, but it is one example where literally it's going to take less physical material dug up out of the ground and burned to lead a healthy, productive life. We've done a lot of programs on on this show talking about education and the democratization of education. And sometimes what I think about is, does the American value system, does the Western value system translate well into countries where that is not the case, where capitalism isn't the dominant modus operandi, where creation of wealth is not the motive for most people in their lives. I'm wondering if moving technology into those places is similar to this kind of educational model where we are almost imposing value systems from the westernized world, this capitalistic mindset, into places that have never had it before folks who've never used the internet or if people who've never hold, held a smartphone are now going to be bombarded with incredible amounts of Facebook video. <laughs> How do you deal with that? How does that change the world? And is that necessarily a good thing? Excellent question, Seth. So I'm going to do a little pivot and then pivot back to that. I've developed a talk called Why You Suck at Hiring and What You Can Do About It. And my day job is I'm a business coach. So I help business owners help them scale up their companies. And that usually consists of new products, new services, and needing new employees, new team members. And the way companies go about hiring is usually very sloppy. So I can talk about that a little bit more. When we look at, oh, the robots are coming to take our jobs, is that a good thing or a bad thing? the knee-jerk reaction that some people have is automatically, oh, it must be a bad thing because the robots are machines and we humans are human. Well, there's a very well-cited study at Duke that suggests that 40% of our daily actions are habitual and rote and are more or less unconscious. In other words, 60% of the time we're being human, 40% of the time we're being just automatic. So like brushing my teeth in the morning, taking a shower, making breakfast, those things. Yeah. My favorite example is you're deep in thought while you're driving. It appears you're probably driving safe. I'm not talking about texting or something like that, but you're deep in thought. And then you see a mile marker sign and you say, how did I get here? I was 10 miles down the road. 
one second ago. So that's an example of that. So it turns out that we're more like a machine than we want to admit, but on a more important and more serious note, we have a number of biases. Humans have a built-in bias, and one bias is called overconfidence. We think we're better than we are, and the cruel irony of the overconfidence bias is the more you think of yourself as an expert on a topic, and therefore the more confident you are of your answer, the more wrong it's likely to be, not the more right. So overconfidence bias leads us down the wrong path more times than we care to admit. Another example of bias is what I call the comfort effect. If you were interviewing me for a job right now, you would rate me more highly if you had a warm beverage, cup of tea or coffee in your hand. And you would rate me more highly if I sat here at 10 a.m. rather than at 4 p.m. If you go in front of a judge at 4 p.m., you're going to get a harsher sentence than you would at 10 a.m. So it turns out we have a whole bunch of human biases, and artificial intelligence can actually be programmed to be more human than humans are. So there's a whole field going into what are the natural biases and how do we program against those. Related to that is the software developer may have a bias. And so there's a whole field of how do we remove any kind of cultural bias, for instance, racial bias, economic bias, from the artificial intelligence programs themselves. This is a new and emerging field, but plenty of social theorists have already been studying how that bias is built into our social policy and other type programs. And now that same thinking is being applied to the new field of cognitive computing. So once again, the answer is it's nuanced. It's not that all Western capitalist companies are going to recolonize the world again. It's not that simple. And it's also important to realize you were talking about education there's a very large X prize in the field of education. So education, it turns out, is a big problem. We need something like a million more teachers than we have. And when you look at the trends in teacher education, et cetera, we're never going to have those teachers. And we know very clearly that when we help impoverished girls escape poverty, it begins a, a long but very clearly articulated path to prosperity for the person, their family, their community, their region, their country. And so some of the technological focus within the X Prize for Education specifically is to teach basic education skills to people that wouldn't have it any other way. So when you compare what might be some degree of Western thinking or bias to abject poverty and violence and lawlessness, it's a worthwhile trade-off. So you're saying that anything is better than the lawlessness that exists in many third world countries right now? I don't want to exactly say it that way, but more and more we see that technology does have a way to 
democratize different areas that previously weren't so democratic. And my favorite example of this is the Shah of Iran was not a popular figure in his country. And aside from the fact that you may not like who replaced him, that's a different issue. When you look at how did that change happen, it was a state-run media and everything was strictly controlled. And it was actually when the Sony Walkman first came in as a cheap media distribution platform. And the people that wanted to overthrow the government did it through cassette tape. Well, the Gutenberg printing press was definitely disruptive. And what they said about novels was, like, you know, ladies are going to read these novels and just get totally absorbed into their novel and not do any of the housework that was needed. So there's always these disruptive technologies that kind of come along and change society. And whether or not it's a good change for society is always on the other side of that. It's not for us to decide. It's for us to just be a part of that. Do you think that that this is the philosophy we take towards this technology? Do we have to craft it or put it into a way where it can do as little harm as possible? Absolutely. And a lot of advanced thinking is going into solving that problem. So there's a new technology coming that has people really, really upset. It's revolutionary. It's destabilizing. It's going to upset everything. It's really a big problem. And the people that see it coming are absolutely justified and outraged that they have to do everything possible to prevent it. When is it? The year is around 1850. What is it? It's the printing press. And it's, it's actually not the printing press. It's large-scale education about how to read. So there were very much anti-reading, anti-technologists that waged a major battle to prevent it from happening. But as you well know, of course it happened, and the world has been transformed many times over. So yeah, these kind of battles are not new. They're going to play out all the time. And I think what's important is to develop a code of conduct and a code of ethics for how does this serve me? How does it serve my community? How does it serve people? Are the profits coming from it getting centralized at the top, or is there some equality that's more widely distributed? And some of those answers are very much a function of the choices that we make. It's not predestined one way or the other. So as a business coach, you deal with jobs in various forms. I'm wondering, what do human jobs look like when most of the tedium or most of the rote things that we do as humans get taken away. You know, when I don't have to make my breakfast in the morning, when I don't have to make my bed in the morning, when I don't have to clean the floor when it gets dirty, what does a human do when he doesn't have those things that basically make him human to do anymore? I'm going to give you some facts, and then I'm going to give you some conjecture. The facts are that there's a lot of misconceptions about this. I don't think we're all going to have robots cooking us breakfast in the next five years. And I don't believe that some of the disruption is going to happen as widely as we think it is. So let's just go back to the past 
five or 10 years, particularly with the iPhone is one particular device that's been extremely disruptive. And we can pick one human activity called getting lost or not getting lost. And now that we have Apple Maps and Google Maps and Siri voice dictation, et cetera, we can travel around without ever having to know where we are, where we're going. Basically, I've downloaded my whole sense of direction into my phone. Right. Yeah, that's happened. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, on the whole, I think it's a good thing. If you're a map maker, unfortunately, it's a bad thing. So there is disruption, without any doubt. So you asked about what's going to happen when all our jobs are replaced. I don't think we're going to really see it that way. Right now, what happened is I no longer have a shelf full of maps before I take a trip. And then that was replaced by MapQuest, the turn-by-turn printout. And then that was replaced by GPS. And that was replaced by the turn-by-turn navigation that our smartphones provide. So sometimes it's gradual, not sudden. I'm wondering about security as well. When we're all connected to such intense amounts of technology where our bank accounts are all linked up, where where everybody knows most everything about me because I've downloaded you know my itinerary for the day into the internet, where everything around me is so connected to everything else, where I can basically log into my neighbor's mind and read what he's doing. What does that do to privacy? I mean, right now people have this idea of what privacy is. Does it radically change when we integrate technology into most parts of our lives. Yes. Privacy and security are mega issues. And honestly, it's a little bit uncomfortable. We're on track to have something like 50 billion with a B sensors in our built environment over the next 10 years or so. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young has a great song on one of their newer albums, which, by the way, happens to be a great album. And he says, you know you're going to lose it sooner or later when your TV controls your refrigerator. And that speaks to the idea of the uber-connected or hyper-connected world. And privacy and security are real concerns. So do we just suck it up and say, all right, well, everyone's going to know everything I do now. Is that what we're just going to have to deal with? Is that something that we're like, oh, in my day, people didn't used to read my diary, but now everyone can read my diary. If any of your listeners are looking for direction in their careers, a hot new field, and I will help you start your career in this, is what is sometimes called white hat hacking or penetration testing, pen testing. Large companies do this now. Banks probably spend billions a year, but consumers don't, and they need to. So that new field of white hat hacking and privacy protection, security protection, is going to be a big field. And I personally would pay a lot of money to have someone come in and completely track my digital footprint and tell me what all my vulnerabilities are and how to close them. And of course... Even here, you worry about security and privacy. You would have to ensure the integrity of your penetration tester and make sure that they're not developing a database that they could then use against you because you really would be defenseless if they 
misused it. So I think that field of security and privacy protection is only going to grow as the sensors and the Internet of Things becomes more ubiquitous. I wonder if that sector will be something that only rich people can have, you know, like only if you have a billion dollars that you can afford to have somebody who who can run a program for you that will cut you off from the world. I wonder if that will become the norm instead of being connected to the norm. In this day and age, there's almost an open source analog for every private enterprise effort. So there probably is open source white hat hacking and penetration testing. I just haven't looked into it yet. So as technology becomes more and more a part of our lives, it becomes more of a part of us as well. Uh, I know that using my smartphone has very much become almost part of my arm. You know, I, I pull it out all the time to look at instant messages, to check email, to check directions like we were talking about, to listen to music. There's an incredible amount of information that lives in the palm of my hand. I'm wondering how that might evolve, how that technology becomes part of us even more. Do we get contact lenses? Do we get implants in our brain? How do those soft human interactions change as technology becomes part of us? People are always going to have a choice. For instance, what do you think of the idea of unplugging your phone and going out into the woods and dancing all weekend? I love it. Sounds like a good idea, right? So that's a choice you can make. And even though you may be checking your phone all the time during the week and have six hours of emails to look at when you get back to work, to have that weekend off is a choice. So I'm a little bit old school in this regard. I do think that some of the simple human pleasures of life, looking at clouds, having contact with another human being, are only going to become more precious the more our life gets disrupted by digital technology. You mentioned privacy as a new industry opening up. Well, it's an industry that's here, but expanding. What other industries do you foresee coming along as technology becomes more and more ubiquitous in our lives? Well, there's a lot of information about what the jobs of the future are, but I have a particular interest in a narrow subset of that, and that's the frame of reference I take as part of being in the Abundance 360 community. Other people are the technologists and other people are the real entrepreneurs who are building these tools and these systems. My specialty is to focus on the legal, ethical, moral, and psychological implications of these changes. And this isn't a real field, but being some kind of a digital philosopher and helping people make wise choices about how to leverage technology and also how to turn it off is a real skill that is in demand and will only grow. So that's not a list of the top 10 new jobs, but that's certainly an intersection that I spend a lot of time studying. Do you feel like this trend is an inevitability? Is there anything that could stop it? Is there anything that might force people to move in another direction other than the abundance of technology? There are small choices individuals can make every day, like whether to turn off their phone and go to the gym or just stay on the couch. And there are choices that companies can make and regional municipalities can make and state and federal governments can make. Sometimes they make informed, enlightened choices 
However, this is scary and frustrating. It's more common that elected officials are going to take more of a short-term approach and not really look at things in the long term. So the internet is mostly driven by media content. This is video, this is written, this is sound. And as technology expands across the globe, there will be more consumers of this kind of media, more people listening to different kinds of information. Does this break up the media cycle as we know it? Does this change the 24-hour media news cycle and make it more of a niche market where you can learn about something super specific or a totally different kind of point of view? Does it change the way that people consume media? Absolutely. It's a massive change. One of the concerns is that it also gets to be more like an echo chamber because in social media, you unfriend or unfollow people who don't have your point of view. So more and more, you're just hearing stories that reinforce your worldview. And so that kind of bias in social media is very troubling. And I find that I have to take extra steps to get an informed and balanced source of intelligent commentary and insight about world affairs around me. And increasingly, that fair and balanced voice is hard to find. I mean, it's hard to find right now already. Yes. So yeah, it'll change media for sure. I'm just thinking about these folks who don't have that internet right now, that that connectivity, they're being a part of it and they're being able to consume this media changes their outlook on life. It changes their perspective on life a lot too because now they have this much broader global perspective. They know what's happening in the tech world maybe or they know what's happening. The new Tesla just came out and this guy in India who sells you know bean patties on the side of, of the road can now check his smart device and learn about the developments in global conflict. How does that change his reality? So last night, Kobe Bryant played his final basketball game, and more people saw it in China than in the United States. Basketball's way big in China. So it's crazy. That's an example where, yeah, there's a global reach in a way that never really existed before, and that's only going to continue. Do you think that's a positive thing for humanity to be more connected or is it more of a, a negative thing? I think that we've already talked about the rise of the Luddites who were against the printing press and the rise of the Luddites that were against reading. And what I find is that when I fear technology, I lose. Now, does that mean I blindly embrace it? No. But I do think that many of these fears are misguided and overblown. And when you look at the actual reality of what actually happens on the ground, it tends to be more benign or more positive than the critics who are critical of it give it credit for. And frequently the proponents aren't really able to understand all of the big picture benefits that occur over time. So I'm a techno-optimist with a fair dose of caution and show me the data also. Another thing I was thinking about is education. Right now we, we have higher education that lives in these brick-and-mortar institutions, these ivory towers of, of learning where you have to pay lots and lots of money to go to these high places where you can learn advanced skills. 
do you see this changing as information becomes more fluid? I, th- I feel like as this technology moves around the world, information moves with it and becomes almost like a commodity. And it becomes something that's easily moved around a lot easier than in books or in spoken words. Does this change the way that education is disseminated? And how do we rank people who can do the same job, but in another country far, far away? There's a lot of people a lot smarter and a lot richer than me who've thought about that exact question. And there's a book that just came out by a guy named Steve Case. He founded AOL, and the book is called The Third Revolution or The Third Wave. And the the first wave was just the Internet, and then the second wave were all the apps and the devices and the Googles, etc. And the third wave is going to be the application of the first and second wave. And in particular, it's going to hit established institutions that up till now haven't been disrupted, government, healthcare, and education. And Steve Case's venture capital firm specializes in making investments in disruptive technologies in the education space. So we see now the rise of these massively open online courses, Coursera and Udemy and just a whole bunch of other technology platforms now, where all of the world's leading universities are putting most, not all of their information, but a lot of their stuff out online. And so there are 100 people in a village in Uganda that hardly has any electricity, but they have enough Wi-Fi to take the course learning computer science. So we also see a massive democratization of education that's underway right now. There are 3,000 institutions that grant degrees in the United States. The top 100, 150, 200 of those They're going to be okay one way or another. I'm not too worried about Duke or UNC, Chapel Hill, but UNC Pembroke and others, what's their long-term future going to be? And I think the education landscape is going to look quite different, possibly sooner than we think. And that closes out our interview with Jim talking about some of the opportunities for exponential technology, as well as the interview with Paul Vigna to discuss Bitcoin and blockchain technology and how that can revolutionize money and value and trust in our society. And so, Seth, I want to put this question to you, you know, listening to that conversation with Paul what do you think? Are, are you sold on Bitcoin's potential or does it seem like, uh, I don't know, this is never really going to replace banks? Well, Paul made some really interesting points about the prevalence and the proliferation about a digital currency in our hyper-connected world. And I think that dovetailed really nicely with the conversation that I had with Jim 
about how technology is, is on this forward march, you know, where this it's kind of connecting worlds, bridging gaps that have never been bridged before. And I see currency kind of moving along that that way. You know, when you're buying something from Amazon or you're buying something from whatever online retailer that you choose to buy from, it doesn't really matter that much where the money is coming from. You're working your job, it goes into your bank account, and then it goes out to this online retailer. And you actually never see that paper money that he was talking about. You don't actually hold that dollar bill in your hand. You don't go out to the retailer and see them face to face and hand them your hard earned cash and say, here's my money. Now give me my product. You're actually just having a little online transaction. And really, logistically, people don't care that much what currency they're using. They don't care where it's coming from. They just only care about, you know, if you're using Amazon two day shipping, making sure it gets there fast and the lowest price. So whether it's coming from the other side of the world or it's coming from your next door neighbor, a lot of people don't really even care about that, where it's coming from. They just want it there now as fast as possible. So it would make sense to me for some sort of digital currency to emerge on the scene that would help to make that smoother, you know, help to make those interactions work better and, and faster. And if you could get rid of exchange rates internationally, that would probably make your transaction even that much smoother. Yeah, there's all of these companies like Western Union and banks that just get to sit on top of the network that has already been built and just do that rent sinking game of extracting the unearned income from every single transaction that we make between buyer and seller. And because they get to do that, it just puts this huge amount of money into their hands that really could be distributed back into the economy And I'm not saying that they don't provide a really valuable service, like having a network that you can really trust to make sure that when I make a credit card payment, it really does go to the person I'm buying something from. Like that is a critical role in society and it definitely deserves some kind of payment to it. But at the same time, it's built on this archaic model of the past And now that we have digital phones and other ways of making that connection point to point, it seems like there is a ripe space for these kinds of peer-to-peer value exchange transactions. But then we get back into all the human elements, which is why I really like talking with Paul about Bitcoin because there's just so many techno-evangelists in the Bitcoin space where it's like Bitcoin will change everything. And... I tend to see Bitcoin as a first trial in a long series of experiments in this world where we really don't know how it's going to end up. But Paul was very balanced in his viewpoint because the Bitcoin story fascinates me because it's easy to have a very utopian vision of technology, especially given the changes in digital communications technology over the last 10 and 20 years. But the Bitcoin story reveals how the human element is something you can't get away from. There's the same kind of trust issues, the politics, the elements that just make human life messy. You can't get rid of those human frailties. And this is something that we mentioned a little bit, but there is this exchange for Bitcoin, the very first one ever, you know, like a stock market basically for Bitcoin for buyers and sellers. And, you know, there was fraud and all of these underhanded deals. And there was this original core at the root of Bitcoin that was very utopian and envisioning how the technology could get rid of all these political aspects of money. And yet, 
they're right there again. So I think that kind of dovetails with some of the hesitations that Jim was expressing in his interview around some of the ways that technology will impact our lives. I really liked how Jim said that even as we have more digital interactions and more technology, we're going to value things like going out and looking at the clouds or, you know, having a weekend away in in the forest or something even more. That was, I thought that dovetailed really well with Paul's points about the human element you just can't escape in money. Yeah. And we all have our biases too. So even the programmers who are writing this technology that's trying to save us from our moral selves, you know, these people have their own biases that they're building into the system. And you can't even get away from that. Even as as hard as you try, Jim mentioned machines building other machines and actually being more human than, than humans would be because they build in these moral codes into their programming. But really, if anytime you're interacting with a human, you're going to bring along bias. You're going to bring along all the baggage that a human brings into their life and all the experiences that they've brought. And you can't get away from that. And no matter how much technology you bring into the situation, unless the technology is existing by itself in some sort of vacuum and not interacting with humans, then you're still going to have to deal with that. One another interesting synergy I saw between the two interviews was the talk about how blockchain, the open ledger system, and the idea about the new jobs around privacy that Jim talked about in his interview, that there's so much of us right now that goes into our smart devices, that goes into our technology, you know, bank account information, maps that, that Jim talked about, you know, gaming things, talking to each other via text messages instead of the phone, all this technology that's taken parts of our brain and kind of downloaded it into our technology. And that's something that's not going to be going away. That's something that I see increasing more and more as the technology becomes even more pervasive, you know, putting a video camera contact lens in your eye so that you can blog constantly, you know, throughout the day. Or, you know, putting some sort of haptic touch system on your fingertips so that you can have a keyboard at the ready whenever you want. You know, these kind of things are going to be more and more pervasive in our lives. You know, VR technology where you put a glass over your eye and you can just be away from your body. Dialing all these thoughts and feelings that we have onto Facebook, onto Twitter, onto social media becomes our whole lives. And basically I can pull up my friend's, you know, social media feed and, you know, in five or 10 years, I'll be able to download his entire brain and see exactly what he's thinking or exactly what he he chooses to share. And at what point does the, the privacy of my friend's brain and his ability to not share become an issue? You know, do we value privacy as something that it will become a commodity and will that only be for the very rich? That's an interesting thing that we're thinking about. And we see one way of approaching that kind of transparency, one way of being really open as like a positive thing with blockchain. And it's interesting to see how people react to it. And it's interesting to see how how older generations react to it. I see how my parents react to using social media, how my dad reacts to using his cell phone to take a photo and posting on Facebook. It's very, very scary. And watching those interactions with with technology and, and watching how the privacy kind of works its way into those conversations is going to be a very, very fun and very entertaining thing for me to watch. Well, and I think you're definitely on something there about the link between privacy and also the issues of trust that have to go into any kind of money system and value exchange. Because since all of your currency and value is 
stored in these bits that are on a computer hard drive somewhere or in memory, then people can hack in and take that. They can do that to regular banks too, but it's even potentially conceivably easier to do it in the Bitcoin space only because you can leave it unsecured somewhere and like maybe the only place that that Bitcoin lives is on my phone. And if my phone gets stolen, then someone has all of my Bitcoin. But then if I surrender it to the larger network and I store it on some decentralized space, well, a lot of these smaller Bitcoin startups, they don't have the kinds of money to invest in digital security that like JP Morgan or Citigroup does. And then they can get hacked and have everything taken. And that's happened in the past. So, you know, if you go to someone like your parents, Seth, and you say, hey, I want to put like $500 in Bitcoin and I want to store it on my phone, they'd probably be like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. (laughs) You know, like the trust in digital technology that we have as a younger generation is so much more than an older generation. And I don't even know if like I would be totally okay with putting all of my earnings and getting paid in Bitcoins and storing it on my phone and everything. But you look, you know, 10 years younger than us and those kids are growing up in a world that is entirely digital. You know, they've never known a world as a young adult that doesn't have Facebook, whereas we were like the first adopters of it. And so they've never had a world where like, iPhones didn't exist as a young adult. And, you know, we saw the first iPhones and that's going to be a completely different world. They're going to have a completely different trust in digital technology that I think you have to have if a digital currency is ever going to be successful. Absolutely. And thinking about privacy even more, think about like writing in a journal. Think about how you store your thoughts and and feelings on paper with a pen and how that even that is changing now rapidly because people now, I I go to meetings at work and people don't even bring a pen and paper to take notes on. They bring their laptops, they bring their iPhones to write their notes into. And that kind of information becomes part of the cloud as well. So somebody looking to hack you doesn't necessarily have to go after your money. They can go after your intellectual property as well. They can go after the the songs that you write on your computer or the the stories that you write on your computer and they can take those things as well. And that becomes a whole nother sort of legal entity onto itself. Who owns the right to my words? Who owns the rights to my thoughts? Who owns the rights to the dreams that I have at night that I'm recording on my cell phone through my my dream catching app? You know, who <laughs> at what line does the individual become part of a group? And then eventually, you know, how do you monetize off of these things that you create, off what you think of and what you write? And these become all part of this whole value exchange game because I think like as Paul was saying, it becomes less about actually getting monetary amounts in your pocket, but more about the value that your work brings to you. So I do a hard day of work. I get paid in this digital currency. I spend it at with my phone at the supermarket to buy food. I personally don't even care what the currency comes in. It comes in a digital form or it comes in a paper form. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm still getting able to buy the things that I need. Yeah. And just one more thought on that. You know, it would be so easy in a world entirely of digital currency where something like Bitcoin, which enables these really small microtransactions of just like, you know, a millionth of a Bitcoin and smaller to start monetizing everything. And I don't know if that's necessarily the way 
that the world should go, but like literally every time you walk in a door, like it might be able to charge you, you know, a certain amount and it'd just be really small and these things would add up in these small little microtransactions. But there's a good way it could go that I think is a really positive direction that's really useful where kind of a little bit like what Paul was saying, where you walk into a store, I could envision like, you know, picking something off the shelf and as soon as you put it in your cart or your box or bag or something, it just builds you. Like there's no checkout line. You know, it's just there. Justin, how did you feel about Jim's assertion that the march of technology is pretty much inevitable, that there's no way back from this? And just as the Gutenberg press changed our lives, digital technology will keep evolving and keep on changing our lives and to push against it is futile. Yeah, I think it's really easy to take whatever you believe in in regards to this future vision and believe it's inevitable. And I see this happen a lot in the history of technology, and especially from the mid-1960s to the 1980s, nuclear power was inevitable. There are studies that were done during that time that imagined like a quarter of the world's energy supply would be coming from nuclear technology now. Do you want to guess how much of the world's energy is coming from nuclear technology right now? How about 5%? You're almost spot on. Yeah, it's like five to six percent. And it's been in decline and it's been stagnating. And you look at the studies on energy futures done in that time and what people were writing about what they were saying, and it like nuclear technology was inevitable. It was just the way we were going. And in that same time period, there was all of these studies by this group at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria. And they basically took all of the world's energy sources and they were talking about energy transitions. And they said it was like clockwork where, you know, we had coal and then we transitioned to oil and then we were going to transition from oil into gas. And then right after that, it would be nuclear power and it would just be this unlimited cheap energy that we would have. And the model seemed to work for like the last 40 years, like the clockwork was there and it was just going to be like clockwork. All we could adjust is kind of the how fast it happened a little bit, but it seemed inevitable. And now we look back in 2016 at all those models and stuff, they're a hundred percent wrong. There are all these things that couldn't be anticipated. And so I kind of think about the future of digital communications technology and When new technologies are created, there's this initial phase of like rapid build out, extreme optimism about them and a feeling like, you know, this is the way the world is going. But eventually you reach a point where society can't absorb the kind of paradigm shift that it's creating. And there's this rupture point that happens. And basically, I think we're kind of at that point because Digital communications technology is doing a lot of really positive things. I like that we can have this Skype call right now in two different locations across the world and have this ongoing relationship through our show. I think that's super cool. But the people who know how to use computers and use them well are almost becoming like a different class of laborer. And I see among my friends and everyone around us, like if you know how to use computers well, the economy has a lot of opportunities for you. But if you were born with an intelligence that is suited to things that are not using computers, then it's just tough. Like it's tough going. And it's part of the dynamic that's creating this 
heavy-handed inequality that exists in the world where wealth can basically like flow to people in Silicon Valley and in tech companies because they can use the wealth generation engine that exists, but not everyone has that intelligence and because there's such a broad range of intelligences that the world needs and because the world of technology is the one that is that wealth generating engine in today's world, it's kind of like becoming the thing that everyone focuses on. And so I don't see that inequality being able to resolve itself without some kind of rupture point that tries to figure it out. And I mean, basically what I'm saying is that technology has outpaced our social institutions and our social institutions are going to start changing. And Jim's talking about that, but I don't know if that's going to lead to accelerations in, you know, exponential development in communications technology or if it could slow down at some point. I mean, there's lots of cases of technologies that had huge accelerations and then they just slowed down. So there's no way of knowing when your exponential part ends. I think that's a really interesting point that you're making about how the wealth kind of flows to people who can speak the techno lingo. Right. These are the departments and and institutions that are actually growing the digital technology departments that do recording of video, of audio, of putting information into a digital format for others to people to consume. While the institutions like, you know, being an art teacher, that's not really super lucrative right now. You know, being an English teacher, being a math teacher, the education realm doesn't really support these sort of opportunities around technology as much. But, you know, be still being an NBA basketball star is still going to make you millions of dollars like it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, some things aren't going to be affected and they're going to be pumped up even more because like Jim was saying in the interview, you know, China can watch Kobe Bryant's last game. And now there's a whole market of hundreds of millions, if not like half a billion people who probably have smartphones in China who can watch Kobe Bryant's last game. And so it only values them even more, right? Yeah, and that that's another really interesting point. As we grow this market even more, as we develop these satellites that orbit the Earth and provide Wi-Fi for entire countries of underdeveloped nations where you know, the guy on the side of the street selling his wares in India can now plug into the internet and watch that Kobe Bryant last basketball shot, what does that do to our society? How does that change the whole value system that we've come up with in our society? What makes a person valuable? Is it that they can speak in tech talk if they can write some code for a website or is it, can they grow a, a tomato plant for their family to eat? These things kind of change the value systems as our society begins to value them differently. And as the technology pushes people in that direction, as society puts value in places where it hasn't historically rested. Yeah, Bitcoin could allow us to value all kinds of things that we haven't anticipated in a really positive way or in a really draconian way where literally everything that we do is being valued by the marketplace. And I mean, maybe there are some people who, who want that world, but I tend to think that there are just some things that shouldn't be valued by a marketplace. Have you seen that show on Black Mirror where the guy is on the bicycle and he gets charged for watching TV shows and for skipping (laughs) ads? He has to to pay money. Right. Well, I haven't seen it. That's part of my summer watching. But like that's the world that could happen by having these little microtransactions on your phone. Yeah. But speaking of microtransactions, a lot of our listeners have been donating to the show and some of them in Bitcoin in the past. I mean, not recently, but if, if you want if you want to donate via Bitcoin, like go ahead but with like real dollars. They've been donating with that too. 
that's absolutely right, Justin. Bitcoins are so accepted on this show. We love Bitcoins. And actually, I think we just looked up the value of Bitcoins and they're somewhere around $400 US right now. So, so absolutely send us a Bitcoin Woo, if you have that rich. kind of budget. <laughs> yes. Uh, so somebody who has not sent in a Bitcoin, but has actually <laughs> sent in a hard-earned US dollar. Thank you so much to Lee for sending in his hard-earned dollars. Lee is from Tucson. Thank you so much, Lee. We really appreciate that. And Robert from Kansas, thanks so much for sending in your donation. Also, Aaron from Vermont. Thank you so very much, Aaron. Really appreciate you sending in your dollars. And Catherine from Washington State. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. You're the best. Yeah. If you too want to donate money to the Extra Environmentalist podcast, you think that this show has brought you value to your life, you know, maybe not a whole Bitcoin, but maybe a part of a Bitcoin, feel free to head over to our website at extraenvironmentalist.com and drop us some of your dollar bills. If you want to listen to more of the Extra Environmentalist, our, all of our archives are available online for your download pleasure. Head on over to iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or just, you know, head over to our website and listen to the SoundCloud player. And, you know, enjoy every single one of them. Download them all to your phone at once and just go on an extra environmentalist listening binge. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're putting all of these donations into our website revamp, which we hope to have available later this year. For years, we've been putting the amazing generosity of our listeners into equipment upgrades so we can improve the professional sound of our show. And I think we're pretty much there. Yeah, Justin, you're sounding very professional these days. Yeah, well, we're, we're trying to. But And also launching the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. So thanks to all of you. That show's been going super well, extremely well. And now it's time to take our home on the web and give it a revamp. And so that's the next phase and have all of these, you know, there's just so much material that has been recorded at conferences and stuff over the years that's never seen the light of day. That's right, Justin. We are revamping our website, putting your hard-earned donations, listeners, towards making that website bigger and better and stronger and faster, you know, making it a cyborg, basically, because it's it's not even human. It's going to be amazing. So get ready for an amazing website. I'm excited. Are you excited, Justin? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks again for listening to another episode of The Extra Environmentalist. We are so very thankful to have you listening, to have you downloading episodes and listening wherever you go. It's starting to be summer out there. The heat is rising. The humidity is coming back. So if you're in North America, be prepared for sunscreen time. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes of The Extra Environmentalist coming up throughout the coming months. Yeah. Extra five moves.
Pro Bitcoin. After looking into this, it's Annie Bank. It's different from conventional money. It's decentralized, and that puts me at ease. But others, not so much. This is what the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank in Chicago had to say about Bitcoin. He said, quote, it's hard to imagine a world where the main currency is based on an extremely complex code, understood by only a few, controlled by even fewer, without accountability, arbitration, or recourse. <laughs> you just described the Federal Reserve banking system. How did you do that with a straight face? I don't even know lizards could do that. But then again, Bitcoiners, if the government could just shut down the internet, how is my internet money safe again? Great, so now there's a whole nother kind of money that I don't have. So now I'm literally and virtually broke. You can't hold Bitcoins in your hand. Bitcoins aren't printed like dollars. It's like money you never get to see. Well, I'm married. That's all my money. Bitcoin goes in a virtual wallet, cool. Cause all my regular money goes in my wife's wallet. There are two ways you can get Bitcoin. You can buy it with real money, or you can mine for it with a supercomputer. It's like gold for nerds, except gold has real value. I actually bought a computer that I only use to run Bitcoin mining programs. I'm gonna be rich, it should pay for itself in 3,400 years, but from then on, it's all profit. And around the world, people are using these software programs that follow a mathematical formula to produce the Bitcoins. The mathematical formula is freely available so that anyone can check it. But I'm not good at computers or math, so I can't check it. Let's be honest, I can't even open up a Gmail account. 